Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 24, Space Habitats. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So on this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know all the coolest information that's going on right here at NASA. So today, we're talking about the space habitat analog that we have here at the NASA Johnson Space Center called the Human Exploration Research Analog, or HERA, with Lisa Spence and Paul Haugen. Here in Houston, Lisa is the Flight Analog's project manager for HERA, and Paul is the HERA operations engineer. They work with the people who actually stay in HERA, this analog, uh, and simulate deep space missions for days, weeks, and now more than a month. And actually, just recently, uh, the Campaign 4 Mission 3 this year just got out, and they're going to be going home for the holidays. And speaking of which, happy holidays to all of you, whether you celebrate Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever. Happy holidays, and I'm glad to see that the Campaign 4 Mission 3 uh, crew members are going to be going home, too. But uh, here with Lisa and Paul, we had a great discussion about HERA, what it is, what it's like inside, what crew members do on missions, what we're learning, and then how to sign up for those missions. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Ms. Lisa Spence and Dr. Paul Haugen. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light shirt for the red. Here she goes. We have a podcast. part of the crew that was in there during like right before harvey hit or something yep yep so we were halfway through when harvey hit. wow so, halfway yeah. through uh how how long of a mission it's a 45 day mission Whoa. so okay so we were on day 23 when we got kicked out so wow <laughs> so by that time were you pretty much immersed in oh yeah in like the whole environment oh yeah yeah and then all of a sudden oh by the way you're back on earth and yeah it a was hurricane, it so. was it was weird i mean we were very much immersed and we got woken up on they have an emergency comm for just stuff like this and yeah because we were in a calm delay so our normal calm you know was already at a, a you know a delay going on but wow. we got called on the emergency radio and said pack it up you guys are kicked out so that's it <laughs> yeah. it was just all right well we're done we gotta go yep. Yep. So there wasn't because at the at the end I know there's like a usually a ceremony right yeah. and they they do this whole thing nope. where you come out it was just all yep. right you guys get out yep they had all the gates were closed so they had to especially open up a gate to get us out because they were flooded I mean whoa yeah yeah <laughs> wait so when did you when, what what was the day that you guys were out we got kicked out on August 27th so that Sunday morning oh so we, it was right in the middle of all the flooding yes. and stuff yeah. Well, okay, so I'm, I live up in the city, and by far the worst the worst night was Sunday night. But I think Saturday night no, into Sunday night was pretty bad. Saturday too. night was the worst one. For here down in yeah. JC? Oh, yeah. wow. Oh, big time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they got just hammered. Wow. So yeah. what happened to the Hera facility? It was fine. Really? Yeah. So we we were fine inside, but fine. Okay. Michigan Troll, those guys were having trouble getting in and out of of uh, Johnson Space Center and they so it was concern for them that we yeah. had to call it short so wow I know yeah. for they had to uh, set up a lot of cots and everything for people to uh, 
to go back and you know when, once they were done they just slept in the back rooms or well something. in building 30 yeah in but so 30. we have our own mission control oh, you're talking about hair emission the hair emission control and so those folks were having trouble getting in and out and and they were getting stuck in floodwaters and stuff so it was concerned for them that we had to call the mission really? yeah because we inside Hera we were fine we Frankly, we had no idea. And you're <laughs> I mean, right; they closed the gates. Yeah, so, yeah. on top of all the floodwaters, you yep. know, you had you couldn't even get in. Yep. Yep. Wow. All so. right. <laughs> Quite an experience. Are you yeah. going back then? Nope. That's it. That's it. I mean, I, it was it was fun, but now I know too much, so they won't let me go back and be a subject. <laughs> oh, that's right, because so. you actually experienced yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's uh, well let's pull back then, because sure. that that was an awesome story. Let's pull back and just talk about you know what is Hera. Sure. Okay. Um, so, we're talking about space habitats, and it's really a simulator for what it would be like, right, to live in a deep space environment. Is that is that kind of right? Close. So it's, okay. it's not actually a simulator, and that's actually it's a that's a word that gets used quite a bit, but it's a little inaccurate. So it's not it's not actually a simulator. It allows us to simulate what it's like and the difference is that I mean um, is there's a fidelity difference so what this allows us to do is to simulate that we are in a deep space mission and and uh, and we're isolated we're confined and we're controlled Um, and by controlled I mean so they are constantly monitoring us with cameras and audio and we are wearing all sorts of different um, equipment to measure various uh, biomarkers or whatever the case may be and and then there's a mission control so there it's very controlled what they allow in and out of Hera so it's a very very controlled environment and so that's um, and so by being by allowing us to simulate what it's like to be then they can do all sorts of various studies and they can tweak this little part here to see how that will affect things or or not so okay so instead of a simulator what do they what do they call Hera then an analog analog yeah. okay so what's an analog so an analog is, is kind of what I was describing so it, it's, ah. it's a it's a environment that in our case there's two main types of analogs there's a um, there's a isolated and confined and controlled analog and then there's one that's more of an extreme environment that's not as controlled. So, so there's not as much monitoring. There's not as much knowing what goes in and out. But it's more of a harsh environment, such as Antarctica or um, Nemo, which is an underwater analog. Mm-hmm. So there's two main types of analogs. The one here, Hera, is is the um, is the controlled environment. So it's the isolated control. Uh, confined and controlled environment. Okay, and what's the significance of those two segments, like the controlled environment and then the extreme sure. environment? Sure, so the controlled one allows you to do uh, specific scientific studies and really control what's going on, right? So it really allows you to baseline and to and to change certain parameters that really allow you to see how that is going to affect various things, and you're very much isolated and controlled that way whereas more of an extreme one it's not nearly there's a lot more variables that are not controlled and so it's harder to set up um, specific types of scientific experiments maybe however there's the added part of being an extreme environment so there's actual really 
you know, physical risk. Um, you know, if there's an issue in Antarctica, you cannot just open up the door and walk out and be okay and go to the doctor. I mean, you're you're in a rough environment. Same with Nemo. Yeah. I mean, you can't just open up the door and, I mean, you're 60 feet underwater. So Yeah, because ne- yeah, Nemo is the habitat correct. that's literally underwater, and you're right. You can't, you can't open up the door because because you're so deep underwater it's not even just getting out and splashing up like there's a whole sequence of of getting and there's real you know real danger but the whole but that's the purpose right is you're putting them in an environment because the the imminent danger is supposed to help with imminent danger in space that's correct so you're you're adding that stressor that is um is a real stressor i mean you know Technically, I suppose the T-38s could be considered a type of an analog. Yeah, because, aircraft, yeah. You know, it's a, it's a, you know, they use it as a trainer, but they do that because there's real risk involved and there's a real operational experience. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, Hera, I mean, you know, a person knows that you can open the door and step out. Now, that being said, after day two, it, you know, we were really quite immersed. I mean, we were... I mean, you have that in the back of your head that you can open the door and step out, but but you forget about it, and you really become immersed in the mission. So, um, so it's not as big of a player as what I would have originally thought, maybe. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I was surprised how quickly I was able to get immersed in the mission and and forget that I was... I mean, obviously, I knew I wasn't in space because I wasn't floating around or anything like that, but, <laughs> but I, you know, I... I got immersed in the mission, and that happened much, much more than I would have guessed, and much quicker than I would have guessed. Yeah, because one of the main objectives of Hera, right, is is their human research component. That's correct. Is, is understanding what goes through. I guess. Well, I I guess psycholo- psychology is one component, but then there's other components too for the human research aspect. Yeah. So actually, psychology. That's the probably the largest component because they're looking right. at the isolation aspect and that type of thing and how four crew members operate together um, and in our case I mean we're total strangers so um, but the but then there also is more you know there's physiological studies and and uh, other um, principal investigators that look at other aspects as well but probably um, the the psych docs are the biggest um, components of the studies yeah I guess the psychology and then is there a team component too because you said like you that you're working with some strangers but do they select you because you're compatible with these oh, strangers yeah. or incompatible oh well <laughs> so so they so the people that select the crew so there's there's criteria they want there's an age range yeah um, they want 30 to 57 I think it is and they want um, at least a master's and they want it in a technical field and they you know so there's different criteria like that but then beyond that you know there's um and there's a physical you have to pass and there's a psych screening that you have to pass but beyond that so the people that are selecting the crew they look at personalities and they look to see is this crew going to be compatible and they are not trying to pick a crew to fail they are picking one to succeed ah. so they are picking crew members that they think will will work well together and knowing that you know maybe one or two or three or four maybe all of them are going to have some quirks like we all do I guess I mean that so maybe they're not going to work you know person A and B are not going to work as well as person C and D together but they'll still be good enough to get the job done yeah so they definitely look at that all right yeah so 
it's getting these group of people to test you know all of these human aspects of of putting together a mission and the mission is is what what are you simulating in the analog so our mission um this year so this um this year is is um, simulating going to an asteroid and and collecting samples at the asteroid. Mm -hmm. um, it's a, a 715 day mission or something like that. Wow. That they you know shrink down to 45 days. Okay, so you're um, you're in there for 45 correct. days, but pretending to be in there correct. for. That's okay. correct. Okay. Um, so you know future ones may be going to the moon, maybe going to Mars, something like that. But um, so but it's. The purpose for Hera is a deep space mission, so it's it's not just going up to ISS or anything like that, but it's extended exploration to, um, into deep space. And it's a deep space mission in this analog, right? right? Which is simulating that if you were to go in a in a mission profile just like this, you would have this habitat that you would be in and that you would live and work in for a simulated two-ish years or whatever. But really, it's uh, 45 days, obviously. Correct. So, what are what? What's the lay of the land inside Hera? What what what's the full? Okay. I guess um, the the plan. Sure. The, yeah, the, the blueprint the, for the floor Hera. Plan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so they try to keep it, you know, similar to what they think, um, you know, a deep space vehicle would be, mm -hmm. you know, volume wise. Um, obviously, the difference here is we're in one um, G, so so we can't live on the roof or the or the uh, um, walls or anything like oh, that, right? that's right. But, um, so the general layout of the, there's two and a half levels, I guess you could say. Okay. Um, so the bottom level, there's a tiny airlock, <clears throat> and we use that for um, simulated EVAs and stuff like that. There's the main part uh, down on the first floor, and that has, um, um, you know, workstations or um, different simulators. Um, uh, that will work on and stuff, um, lab desks, and and then there's also a hygiene module. So there's a bathroom, a shower, sink, and stuff like that. The the oh, uh, right. second level is um, that's more of the quote unquote living space. Maybe that's where the the uh, um, the food galley is. So that's where the kitchen is, where we would cook, um, prepare foods. That's um, we would do, there's some workstations up there as well. Um, uh, there's uh, workout areas um, for um, whether it's an exercise bike or weights or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then the half level I was talking about, it's actually a level three, but, and those are the sleeping quarters. And so those are roughly the size of a twin bed. So they're fairly small. Um, and they are, um, and that's all that's up there. So it's, it's just the sleeping quarters. All right. Hey, thanks for joining us, Lisa. I'm sorry. I'm glad that, to be you know, here. I know you're very busy, especially because there's um, there's a mission going on right now, right? Yes, there is. <laughs> we are actually on day 19 of 45. So, All right. Yes, we're we're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> well, Paul was. Uh, we started with Paul talking about mm -hmm. his. Uh, part of a mission <laughs> because because <laughs> right. of the whole Harvey thing but then right. we were just going through the the sort of layout of mm -hmm. Hera yeah. and and living and working I guess but there's it's it's two and a half levels you said and there's living you know there's a living component sleeping component and um, it's it's just this whole confined area right it's uh, is it self-contained 
It's pretty much self-contained. Okay. It's, it's, not, um, it's not hermetically sealed, so it is getting air exchanged from the outside. We don't have an active environmental control and life support system. You know, we have plumbing that's provided by the facility, but, mm. um, but it is self-contained. So once we close the doors to start a mission, those doors stay closed until 45 days later when the crew triumphantly emerges <laughs> from uh, from the Hera and gets to reunite with friends and family. That's true. Or quickly emerges in Paul's case, <laughs> I guess. But, yeah, uh, that, was, that was a bit unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> well, he said even in that short amount of time, he got immersed, right? You got immersed into the environment and you're, you were living it, right? Yeah, yep. So what was it like living it then? What was, um, you know, what what state of mind were you in in order to, you know, to think that you were in space, that you were operating in a in a space habitat? So, um, so again, I, I don't quite know how to describe it because okay. I mean, so so I you know we knew that we weren't in space, for example. Yeah. But, um, I get maybe it started with training. I mean, the the trainers did such a good job explaining the importance of what we're doing and why we're doing it and and how important it is to get in that mindset and so just going in purposely um with that mindset it i guess it just kind of came naturally then after that and and we got into a routine and you know we we kept incredibly busy um um you know we had it was partly a sleep deprivation going on so we had long work days and they just kept us busy doing tasks all day uh. and it it really I suppose that was part of it too just keeping us busy and going constantly going you know that helped us to to get in there so on top of the 45 days there's a prepping component too oh right? yeah how how early are you starting to to prep the crew members for for their stay so the the training uh, for these 45-day missions, the training starts 16 days before they're going to go in. So it's uh, we were finding that two weeks was just a little bit cramped, and even <laughs> 16 days may be a little cramped because, as as Paul said, we keep them really really busy during the time frame that they're in there, and so uh, some of that are is on the more operational tasks. So you know the kinds of activities and tasks that you would do as you are flying your spacecraft to this destination. Um, and then, of course, the activities that you're going to do at destination and then the return. But they're also engaged in all of the scientific investigations that, that we are doing where we're collecting the data that will ultimately inform some decisions that we'll be making you know, in order to keep our crew members safe and healthy and happy and productive as they're going on those really long duration exploration missions. So um, so there is there is that training component that's up front. We're also collecting some data that we use as our baseline data uh, that can then be compared to, well, what are the effects? You know, So now we have these individuals, we get some baseline information. Now we subject them to this, this isolated, confined and controlled environment for 45 days you know, what does that affect? What changes? And can we detect those kinds of changes? And then ultimately, will we be able to mitigate those changes if they're not healthy or productive? All right. So there's, a, I mean, 16 days, that's a pretty jam-packed kind of schedule to prep for all of that that sort of training. What kind of, what what's the type of training you're getting? I guess it depends on what you're doing on board. So I guess the follow-up would be, what are you doing on board? Um, 
So I'm, I'm not quite sure how detailed we can get because um, we can't uh, ah, spill the beans for future stuff. That's right, because um, you want people to sign up yeah. and do more missions. We do. Okay. So, yeah, but, critically important that uh, <laughs> that we're able to find, uh, you know, suitable volunteers, you know, people who um, to a large degree um, mimic or emulate the type of people that we select for astronauts. Um, so, so that's very important to us. But... Um, you know, some of the types of things that they do, um, you know, we have a lot of simulators. And so they're, they're flying a simulator for their spacecraft. Hmm. Um, they're participating in uh, virtual reality EVAs. So they do spacewalks, but they're all in virtual reality. There's prep work that needs to go with all of that. Sure. There's also a simulator that is like a robotic arm trainer. Um, and, and those are what we some of the operational tasks, although the operational tasks do allow us to collect some data as well. They have to cook their food. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's no, you know, mom or, or dad or, or spouse or whatever to cook the meals for you. So they do have to cook their own food. It's all food from, uh, for this current mission, this series of missions, all of the food is from the food lab at JSC. All right. It's the same food that the astronauts are getting on board the International Space Station, which means that it's either prepackaged, it's dehydrated, or it's those meals ready to eat that you just kind of warm up in a little warming oven. And every single package of food has to be individually <laughs> fixed. So it takes time. There's a serial process. They get to do a lot of exercise. And then, um, you know, of course, any self-respecting uh, spacecraft, you're going to have to do a little bit of onboard training. You're going to have to do some maintenance and housekeeping tasks. Um, we also have to practice some emergency procedures just in case an emergency were to happen hmm. and so so uh, you know the team my team uh, comes up with you know a, a, a very intensive scenario um, for the spacecraft mission itself and then we weave in um, the all of the different scientific investigations all right. <laughs> so uh, do you have to make up different ones every time, or is it do they sort of translate the, the emergency scenarios? So there's a, a wide variety of, of things that they run you through and stuff like that. And, oh, yeah. You know, and, and all of those things, um, you know, they need to train you in the 16 days prior because, as Lisa said, I mean, if, if you don't know how to do something, it's not like they're going to open the door and, and show you how to do it. So they... You need to know how to do all of the operational tasks, all of the scientific studies, how the vehicle works, how uh, the HERA works um, in those 16 days. So, so uh, the training is, is quite intensive as well. They, yeah, you know, they really cram it with uh, teaching well, you that stuff. So. Sounds like it. Is yeah. there a lot of autonomy with the way that you're doing these tasks, or do you have some support from? From a simulated mission control. Well, so mission control is always there. Okay. So they're they're twenty four seven. Okay. And they are always there to answer questions or, or whatever the case. So you always have that support. Um, there's, I honestly I think it depend it varies from crew to crew and crew member to crew member, how autonomous a person or a crew will wants to be. Oh. Um, so MCC is always there, but 
some cruisers, some people may be a little more autonomous than others. So is that one of the things you're looking at, Lisa, is trying to see, you know, what what things people can do by themselves and what, you know, a, about autonomy and what you need to support? Yep, absolutely. Right. Um, some of the research is looking at those levels of autonomy. Um, and so, yes, MCC is there 24-7. Um, sometimes they're more there than at other times. Uh-huh. Uh, but one of the other things that happens during the mission is, you know, we're, we're simulating a mission to an asteroid. You're getting really, really, really far away from Earth over the course of the mission. So as you get further away from the Earth, there's a calm delay. And so you don't, when you say something to mission control, it may take, you know, anywhere from an additional 30 seconds to five minutes before they hear what you said. And then, of course, when they respond, it's going to take that same 30 seconds to five minutes before you hear it. So if you're the crew member on board and you have a question (laughs) and you ask MCC a question, it's at least 10 minutes. Worst case, it's at least 10 minutes before you get a response. Wow. And so what we find is that um, sometimes the crew members will have to wait for the response and sometimes the crew members just get to the point where they're like hey we don't need no stinking mission control (laughs) we're going to figure this out by ourselves because we're not going to hear back from them anytime real soon so we do see some uh, some trending towards increased autonomy Um, as we move forward uh, with um, not, not this particular research campaign, but future research campaigns, autonomy will become more and more important from a, um, from a research perspective. So um, mission control will always be there 24-7 um, to some degree because that's a, that's a safety requirement to make sure that we have, you know, that everybody is going to you know, be able to implement the mission safely, no issues, no problems. Yeah. Um, but in terms of how much interaction the crew members might have with the mission control, uh, that may be scaled back in, in future research campaigns to, to sort of force that autonomy and to, to really be able to determine, you know, if there are uh, tasks that can and should be done that way or if there are things that ought not to be done so autonomously. So is that d- kind of depending on the mission profile? So I, you're doing a mission profile to an asteroid now, maybe with once you get to Mars, those can take 20-something minute one-way trip. You're talking about not getting a response for 40 minutes. So autonomy is definitely something that needs to be built into the tasks for, for that kind of mission, right? Absolutely, and, and with the autonomy, um, will probably come a need to revisit how we're doing training, how, how much training we can do, how long it's going to take to do the training, and whether we need to move some of that training inside the module after the mission starts. Uh, I'm not talking about us coming in and, and setting up our little genie workshop. Um, <laughs> you know, it would be some type of onboard training, maybe some uplink video or something along those lines. But um, our simulator, um, does have the capability of doing that 20-minute uh, voice delay. 
Oh. We just we don't need it for the current uh, current set of missions. But mm -hmm. if we change our scenario, and as we change our scenario uh, to to a Mars-based scenario, we could certainly implement that longer longer term calm delay. Wow. So, Paul, did you have to live this calm delay? Yep. You did. Yeah, we were. Um, so we were on day 23. So we were at the five minute one way calm delays. So, All right. Yeah. So how did that affect your work from, you know, how did that progress? You know, frankly, I, I don't really notice any difference um, other than having to uh, be a little more careful about what, it, looking ahead more in, the, in the, whatever task we were working on and saying, oh, I need to interact with MCC here. I'm going to make the call as soon as I possibly can and kind of lining it up that way. But Really, I mean, it, it wasn't as a huge impact. I, th I think, uh, you know, one or two of the other crew members would probably say otherwise. You know, <laughs> I think it was a little more of an impact. Yeah. Um, but, you know, then one or two of, of us, uh, you know, I don't think it was a huge impact. So. Hmm. Um, so is that some of the stuff you're finding, Lisa, is that some of this stuff is not universal, right? It kind of is a little bit more crew dependent. It, it certainly is. Yeah. And, um, you had asked the question a little while ago about, um, you know, whether some of the tasks that we do, if we create them new for every mission, uh, actually what we do is we, we have a suite of uh, scientific investigations that we're, we're implementing right now. We will implement those scientific investigations for all four of the missions that will run within that, we call it a campaign. Each one of the missions in that campaign is as identical as we can make it mm -hmm. from a mission control, from a timeline standpoint. The variable in how the mission is executed really comes down to the individuals who are our crew members inside. And, um, you know, we say it a little bit tongue-in-cheek, and, it, and it's, it's really true. Um, every single crew is different. You know, every crew is special, they're different, they're unique. Um, how these four individuals mold into a crew, it's different every single time. And then, of course, the, the four individuals acting as individuals, that's different every time as well. So um, it, it really, it, it, you know, when I abstract myself out of, you know, the actual execution of the mission, and I look at it kind of more in an aggregate viewpoint, uh, it, it's, a, it, it's just fun to, to see the variability between individuals. Absolutely. That's just good science, right? Doing it the same, and then you just see the differences yes. between what exactly what you want to study, which is the people, right? That's what we're hoping for, yes. <laughs> All right. And, and that's one thing that's very unique. You know, we had talked earlier about the different types of analogs and that's one thing that's very unique I think to Hera is that we are able to um, to cookie cutter for missions and have them as identical as they possibly can be mm -hmm. and have 16 um, subjects or 16 guinea pigs or whatever that we are can use for that scientific data that is you know probably more unique to our analog than than to some others all right so backing up from there <coughs> 16 you're talking about four missions per year right correct. so four missions of four crew members correct and this year i guess was the 45-day mission yes so where did it start and how has it evolved 
Um, so the Hera is, this is only our fourth year of operation. So this oh. is campaign four. Um, it started, I, I guess, in you know, 2012, 2013 um, with seven day missions. So pretty short, yeah. um, you know, but, you know, that's, it's a good place to start. And then the following year, we went to 14-day missions. Uh, so we doubled, which is pretty <laughs> exciting. Uh, and then the third year, so campaign three, last year, uh, we did four 30-day missions. So we doubled again. Um, now, if you do the math, we, we couldn't con- <laughs> continue to double the duration of the mission and still get four missions executed in you know roughly a year's period of time so um, we we work very very closely with our um, our scientific community the stakeholders in all of this Mm -hmm. and um, well yeah they they certainly want those longer duration missions Um, they kind of determined that 45 days is a, a duration that is is very beneficial to them and so we, we can do the four 45-day missions in roughly a year as long as we don't get harveyed <laughs> harvey harvey sort of threw a, a monkey wrench into the whole process this year so Ooh, that's right so what number was your mission paul was it number three of four uh, we were actually number two number two yeah. yep. okay so you got you have two completed 45-day missions right and you're on the last one or uh, it, I, did the schedule kind of get messed up? Well, the schedule got a little bit wonky. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think that's the technical yeah. term that we use yeah. for it, wonky. Um, so, so Paul's mission was the second, and okay. it, it got harveyed. Right. Um, so truncated at 23 days. And so we're, we're currently in the middle of our third mission. I see. Um, so, so, again, you, you kind of have to, you know, we, we had to do all the recovery, of course, from, uh, from Harvey. And then, you know, we already had this third mission scheduled for a specific time. We'd recruited subjects. And so we can't just, you know, move the schedule around, you know, to, to fill up the white space that was created by the shortened mission. So, mm. uh, so this is the third mission. Our fourth mission will start in the January time frame. All right. So you mentioned that the 45-day mission was kind of like a 700 and some. What was the number again? Uh, I think it was 715. 715 or day like mission yeah. collapsed into 45 just yeah. because 715 would be a lot to ask of someone. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think in terms of a time warp. <laughs> <laughs> so how so how has the mission design changed for? Because there was a seven day mission, right? Did you did you condense the 715 day mission to seven days? Uh, we used a slightly different scenario I during the, the seven and 14 day missions, but yeah, uh, they do get compressed or condensed right. um, fairly significantly. The 45 day mission obviously means that we don't have to compress it quite so much, but um, as, as we move on, um, we are looking at different kinds of scenarios um, and you know, so we, we may use a different compression factor just depending on what kind of mission profile we choose to fly for future campaigns. Okay. So what was the seven-day mission? Was it out to an asteroid or was it somewhere else? I believe it was to an asteroid. Um, I actually came onto the project at the tail end of uh, the 14-day missions. Actually, I think they were already over by the time I came onto the project. So, uh, so I've really only been the project manager 
you know, for the end of that campaign and then all of the third and the fourth campaign. Okay. And now planning for campaign five. <laughs> all right. Yes, it's very exciting. So what's what's coming up then? Do you mind, do you want a preview? <laughs> for campaign five? Yeah. I mean, it's going to be a you know the same type of thing where there'll be a a deep space exploration mission, mm-hmm. um, you know, to a destination of some type. And it'll be, um, you know, there'll be operational. T- it'll be the, laid out the same. It'll be a different scenario, but it'll be the same types of things. So, uh, operational tasks, scientific tasks. They'll be looking at, you know, psychological aspects and autonomy and and possibly some physiological again. But um, but the uh, it'll be laid out this similar. So again, there'll be four missions you know, as identical as can possibly be um, with a four crews apiece, so. And they will be 45-day missions, so for the foreseeable future, you know, all of our campaigns, as far as we know, (laughs) um, the research community is requesting us to continue with a 45-day mission. So um, for campaign five, we we will have a, a different suite of scientific investigations. Some of the investigations that we're currently doing will carry over. And then we also have some new investigations that we'll be executing for the first time in campaign five. So mm. um, so there's there's a lot of work that needs to be done with that. The, uh, the investigations themselves oftentimes will um, drive the types of operational activities that my team develops um, so, for instance, you know, one particular uh, research investigation may be looking at uh, crew interactions, and so we might want to develop some operational tasks that would uh, force uh, a couple of crew members with working together, mm-hmm. and maybe force different combinations of the four crew members working together, maybe you know, two working together, three working together, or even tasks that would require all four. And so um, as we get into, we're, we're just getting ready to kick off all of that activity, but as we get into uh, kind of into the guts of the individual scientific investigations, that will help us determine what scenario is going to work best, what kind of um, activities will we need to do, um, how intensive are some of the um, data collection activities that we need to do, how is that going to impact laying things out on a mission timeline. All of those things kind of get rolled up into a whole lot of work um, <laughs> that a small number of people will do in, in what seemingly <laughs> is an incredibly short amount of time. All right. Well, it sounds like there's uh, not a lot of spoilers that you can give for what's coming <laughs> up. And But is there is there some high-level stuff that you can share about what you've learned so far and how that's going to be put into deep space missions for actually, you know, for human spaceflight in the future? You know, you're kind of touching on an area that, for me, was one of the neatest aspects of, of being on the crew. And that was, um, was having the the folks doing the training um, amplifying the fact that this is needed for deep for real deep space missions mm-hmm. so this type of research the questions that are being asked and the answers that they're trying to find are needed before we can ever hope to go uh, to deep space and so that aspect is is pretty neat um, 
um, you know, there's, there's all of the questions I think that we've already been touching on as far as of what types of questions they need to answer. Yeah. Um, you know, the autonomy, the, the crew composition, the um, different thing. How busy do the crew need to be on, you know, if they're going for nine months to Mars, how busy do they need to be during that time? Or can they just have nothing to do all day for nine months? I mean, so there's all sorts of different questions that that need to be answered and they're trying to answer now. I think, you know, I think a lot of the studies, because they do roll from year to year, I think a lot of it hasn't been published yet and been uh. fully analyzed. So I think, I think, Lisa will know better, but I think we're just starting to get to the point where they're starting to maybe publish some of the work now from the past mm, four years. Some more to come. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> more to come. And, and um, Paul's absolutely right. A, a lot of the studies that we saw um, in earlier campaigns, they do have a tendency to roll forward. About half of the studies in any given campaign tr tend to move forward, and some of them have, have been implemented or planned to be implemented in two or three, maybe even more, uh, research campaigns. Um, so it, it gives um, the researchers a lot of a lot of n, you know, that scientific validity. Yeah. But um, the researchers are also being uh, making some slight modifications to how they're doing their research based on what they're seeing. Now that doesn't mean that they have the answers or that they have published those answers, but they can kind of see you know trends in what is what is going on so mm -hmm. um, I, I think it will be very exciting one of the things that the human research program does uh, every year uh, they have an investigators workshop that happens at the end of January it's down in Galveston um, we invite all of the researchers who are being funded uh, through the human research program to come and talk about their research, you know, and uh, whether that is talking about what their research is, you know, for instance, if they don't have any results yet or haven't crunched all the numbers, if you will, or whether they have preliminary results or, you know, if they're just in the planning stage for that next experiment. But um, it, it really, I think we are now at the point where the 2018 investigator workshop is is really going to start we're really going to start hearing about some of the results that investigators participating in Hera over the last three years um, have what they've found wow I know it's <laughs> great that's cool so Hera is mostly a human yes. study right it's yes. mostly the the human aspect is there some components of designing a mission or the layout of a space habitat, or is it really just focusing on the human part? No, I, I think you touch on an important aspect. So, I mean, you know, there's, um, um, whether it's procedures or even equipment or whatever, that that sometimes, um, you know, groups will want to vet or check out in an analog such as HERA. So so there's there's most definitely other aspects of, a, of a, what analogs are useful for and and uh, can be used for definitely yeah. and, and mission planning too like you stated as well so yeah yeah, 
even on the International Space Station right now too, they they have you know they have conferences for like at medical conferences that are private because you know you need to keep that stuff confidential. But then also in case anything's wrong, you can talk to a psychologist, mm -hmm. and then you can talk to your family too. So you're in constant mm -hmm. communication with them. You're in constant communication with the ground. You don't feel isolated. You know all these things on the International Space Station as well. And I'm sure Hera too has some human elements, but all of this can be translated out to deep space. So, um, Paul, take me through, like, I don't know, if, without, you know, much spoilers, what's like a typical day in, on the, on, in Hera? You wake up at seven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, wake up at seven. Um, you know, you, you don all of your equipment, which takes a fair amount of time. I mean, there's all sorts of different, um, um, measurements that, that they're taking. So you don that stuff, you eat breakfast um, and then you begin your day so there's whether it's and the days vary so it's not the same every day so whether it's you know some of the simulators that Lisa was describing earlier or some of the other various tasks tasks and you know generally we do them throughout uh, the morning you know lunch would be later typically in our we had a sleep deprivation going on like I was stating so yeah we eat later in you know mid-afternoon and then continue on with tasks um, until evening and evening would roll around and we would um, you know obviously eat supper then and and then we would have a little bit of downtime uh, and you know we had to be sure that we stayed awake until uh, certain you know so they were monitoring that pretty closely but um, so but the days were surprisingly I mean the time was absolutely flying by i mean it, it felt like we had been in there about five days and it was 23 i mean it wow it felt like we were in the first week so it was really going by fast um huh did so, you was your sense of time off because you're not really seeing the sunrise and set right yeah yeah i suppose it was be, I, okay. you know yeah i i think so you know th that was a little weird not seeing the sun ever <laughs> but uh, but uh but yeah you know yeah, I guess, you know, I didn't find myself getting hungry until lunch at 3 o'clock or whatever it was, you know, I mean, later in the day and, yeah. and supper, we were eating late. and But but it didn't seem that like that. I mean, it didn't seem like we were working these extended long days. It seemed like like just a normal day. I mean, so the days were going by fast and the, huh. the time itself was going by pretty fast. Wow. So... So you wouldn't let Paul go to sleep, huh? You had to keep no, him up. Um, no, everybody had to stay awake. Um, so with the, the study that's going on, the, um, the awake time is 19 hours, and then wow. the sleep time is five hours. But that's only Monday through Friday. They, you get to sleep in a bit on the weekend. So you do get a break on the weekend, sort of reset. Um, and, and for some individuals, uh, the fact that there is a weekend and, and the schedule's a little bit different, that might help people mark time um, but yeah the absence of all of those external cues we do find that uh, that the crew members lose track a little bit of time um, now you had a very special guest 
inside <laughs> inside the Hera. We did. Um, you had Wilson. Yeah. Um, and so that goes back to uh, the movie, I guess, Castaway, right? Yeah. All right. Um, now, as I recall from that movie, and it has been a long time, he kind of marked off the number of days, but he was able to see the sunrise and the sunset to keep track of how many days he'd been on that, that desert did island. Help. But uh, I didn't observe uh, this crew marking off the days. They just had Wilson as their companion. Actually, we did. So did we, we had on, there was a little whiteboard that we designated, and we had uh, written out the calendar, or the, you know, the mission days, and that was one of the highlights. So at the end of the day, we would go down and X off what day we had finished. And, like and an advent calendar. Yeah, that's exactly what it was like, <laughs> yeah. And we, we marked where... You know, the halfway point, we marked when the calm delays would start, you know, kind of all of the big exciting things. When we'd reach the destination and how long we'd be there, we we blocked that off. So oh. so we were we were checking the days off, but that was kind of a high, I mean, it was, you know, exciting to, you know, whose turn it was to check off the date. <laughs> so... <laughs> So that was something that your crew sort of just kept track of, right? It wasn't yeah. assigned to you. It no, was just, no, no. So was it like a team building thing that you guys came up with, or I, not intentionally? But oh, I mean, okay. it kind of ended up being that way. I mean, cool. you know, it ended up being that. You know, I mean, you know, I think it was the first day we were in there, and I just wrote out the numbers, and I didn't think anyone really cared. But then, you know, they all wanted to be. Everyone wanted to be, you know, the one to check it off when we were done <laughs> with the day. So. So it kind of became, a, I suppose, a team-building thing. Yeah. yeah. But, hey, um, I guess in an environment like that, like those little things, like you yeah. really just look forward to. And yeah. hanging out with Wilson, too. That yeah, helped. you know, having Wilson, <laughs> I mean, we used him on a lot of the PAO events and, yeah. you know, had them uh, had him around. And so, yeah, it became kind of a, kind of a neat little team-building mascot as well. Wow. So. so the kinds of people you're looking for to sign up are astronaut-like, right? Mm -hmm. In what sense? Um, so obviously our astronauts are very healthy. Mm -hmm. So um, our, our subjects have to be able to pass a, a modified class three Air Force physical, which, which generally means you're, you're in pretty good health. Congratulations, um, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you don't have to be an Olympic athlete or anything like that, but you do need to be pretty, pretty healthy. Um, we're looking for people between the age range of 30 and 55. Um, and I know I, we've gotten a lot of feedback on that, but, but by the time our astronauts fly, that's really generally the age range that we're going to see. So we want them to be a similar in terms of, you know, I'll call it um, social maturity, educational maturity, um, social maturity, so similar in that respect to our astronaut corps. Mm -hmm. um, our astronauts are pretty highly educated. And so education is also one of our criteria, and we, we are looking for people who have um, an advanced degree, say a master's degree or above, in some type of STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, or math field. Um, that's that's our, our, uh, our favorite criterion to use, or, or one of our key criterion to use. We do find, though, that, uh, that people who have uh, certain types of backgrounds, say for instance a military background, um, we can easily substitute uh, military background for that advanced education if, if a person has you know, um, some level of skill in say uh, maybe an engineering or a technology type of field 
and uh, military experience, those people are very similar to our astronaut corps as well. So, mm -hmm. so those are some of the, the major criteria that we're looking for. You know, we are looking for men as well as women. Uh, we, uh, in, in a perfect world, we would have a, a crew that's 50-50, that's you know, mm -hmm. half men and half women. Um, you know, so, so those healthy, educated you know, individuals. Um, some of the other things that, um, that we look for um, are people who are um, highly motivated, you know, so maybe goal-oriented, highly motivated. That's, you know, that describes our astronaut corps to a T. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, uh, so those are some of the factors that we're looking at as well. And, and you know, so, so most of those things are, are objective. You know, you can, you know, you check them off. You know, yep, you're in the right age range. Yep, you've got the right uh, skill set or educational background. Yep, mm -hmm. you passed the physical. Um, and then we also do some interviews um, and some assessments with the potential crew members and say, yep, this person's definitely goal-oriented, um, which, you know, helps us to say, you know, this person, if they set a goal to, you know, stay with us for 45 days, they're, by golly, they're going to meet that goal. That's true, because you need good people and good data, too. You don't we want do. someone leaving halfway through just like, yeah, <laughs> I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> yep. yeah, that would be a bad day. That would be a bad day. <laughs> All right, well... I'm sure there are plenty of people out there like that, but it's interesting um, that you say, you know, in a perfect world, half half men, half women. Um, is that is that the ultimate goal, or do you kind of mix it up every once in a while? So that's that's our ultimate goal, and that okay. is the goal that um, that we have from a research perspective. You know, so over the course of the campaign, they would really dearly love to see uh, that eight of the 16 were female and eight of the 16 were male. Mm. Um, so we, we would like to have that, you know, that 50-50 split in each mission, but uh, we also have to maintain schedule. And so sometimes just the way it works out between the people who have applied and who have screened and been found acceptable they may or may not be available for a specific mission. So we, we have had missions where all four crew members were male. We've had missions where all four crew members were female. Ah. And we've had missions with a 50-50 split, and we've had missions with, you know, three of one gender and one of the other. So um, I, to some degree, we kind of take what we can get or what's available. Sure. Um, it, generally comes very close to the 50-50 over the course of the campaign. All right. Well, hey, good best of luck to you for getting the candidates for, <laughs> for the HERA 5, I guess? What's the next oh, one called? Uh, campaign 5. Campaign 5. Yeah. Campaign yep. 5. Yeah. Very right. cool. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up. And if you stay tuned until afterwards, uh, we'll tell you exactly where to sign up so you can possibly be a, a HERA crew member if you meet all the qualifications that Lisa said. But Lisa and Paul, thanks so much for, for coming in today. Lisa, I know you're busy, so thanks for running over here. <laughs> I appreciate this. This was really cool. I really, yeah, thank you. Just to know about HERA. I've been to HERA and visited a couple times, but just to to dive in and understand what it's like to be there that's that's pretty cool yeah, so thank thanks you. again for coming on thank absolutely. you absolutely and yep. if you're over 30 uh, consider joining us <laughs> almost there <laughs> <laughs>
Hey, thanks for sticking around. So, based on Lisa's description, if you think you're qualified to uh, stay in Hera for those 45-day missions, and from what Paul was describing, was describing, they sounded pretty cool, just go to nasa.gov slash analogs slash Hera. That is the official Hera page. And if you scroll to the bottom, there's a box that says, want to participate. And there you can see all the qualifications and how to apply and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, be prepared for campaign five next year, those 45 day missions that Lisa was talking about and the new mission profile that they're going to be doing. We also like to post about Hera on social media on the NASA Johnson Space Center accounts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have a question about Hera, just use the hashtag NASA on any one of those platforms and uh, ask a question about Hera. We'll answer it. Otherwise, if you have an idea for the show that you want us to do, maybe you want us to do another episode on Hera or on something else entirely, make sure to mention it's for uh, Houston We Have a Podcast, and we'll make sure to answer it for you or even do a whole episode on it. So this podcast was recorded on November 16th, 2017. Thanks to Alex Perryman for producing the show. And thanks again to Miss Lisa Spence and Dr. Paul Haugen for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.